Hey, good morning. Uh, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We are going to be in the book of Revelation today, uh, probably starting around verses, uh, chapters 19 and 20. If you don't have a Bible, we have some over there. Feel free to grab one uh, to find the book of Revelation 19 and 20. Go to the very end. Kind of go just, what is that, left. Try and get the guy who can't tell left and right to tell you how to get through the Bible. Go left from your index. Uh, I will pray for us, and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you for today. As we approach your word, uh, as we approach this book that can be so uh, can feel so difficult or even strange, I pray that we would understand first and foremost, this is a book about you. This is a book about your gospel, uh, and that we would not be afraid to approach this book, but that this book would do in our hearts and in our minds what it's intended to do, and that is lead us to the worship of you, to lead us to be encouraged, and to lead us to know how, how sure-footed we are in you and in your gospel. So please bless this time. Help us to work through it. Help me to work through this text, uh, and help us to hear what you have for us to hear. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. So we, we're coming to the end of our study in the New Testament. We've looked at uh, major sections or every book of the Bible with the intention that you can read your Bible better. And we come to perhaps the most difficult of all the New Testament books, and that is the book of Revelation. Uh, it's really important to read this book, and it's really important not to be afraid of this book. Uh, just like the doctrine of election that we find in Ephesians chapter 1, it's not put there so that we would have epic debates for 2,000 years about it. It's actually put there so that you would be encouraged. Uh, this is a document. This is a letter. This is a book that is built to encourage Christians. That is what it is about. And, and mind you, this is, this is a, a unique kind of literature. This is apocalyptic, which sounds really scary in Terminator-E, or maybe Terminator-esque. Uh, you know, it sounds uh, in, in the world in which we live, when people love to use the word apocalypse, apocalypse in Greek means Revelation. That's why we call it Revelation, because it sounds a little scarier than the Ap John's Apocalypse, which uh, Greek scholars tend to call it. Uh, but go with me to chapter 21 and in verse 4. This is where, uh, if this was a movie review, there would be a big giant line that says, spoiler alert. I'm about to tell you what this book is about and ruin the ending for you if you don't already know. Because here's the deal. We believe that the gospel is the good news that Jesus has come to save us from ourselves to life in God. The frame of that gospel, uh, of Jesus' grace and love for us, uh, is the story of, of biblical history, of human history, of universal history, that God made everything good, human beings broke it, Jesus Christ came to fix it, Jesus Christ came to die and to, to live and to die and to save us from our sin, to make us right with God, and you and I now live in a time waiting for the full actualization of what he did on the cross, and that's the, 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 the redemption of all things, and the, the, as we say around here oftentimes, the putting everything back the way it's supposed to be. So here we are, we're in Revelation chapter 20, and here's the spoiler. He, we're in, uh, pardon me, 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Go back with me to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's amazing. 
So as we approach the book of Revelation, you need to know, first and foremost, this is about Jesus. Uh, and, and secondly, that this is what has been called resistance literature. And by resistance literature, I mean this is placed in the hands of the people of God so that when we look around in the world and say, what the heck is going on here? Or why is this happening even to us? We're the people of God. Or why is this happening to the church? Or why is this happening in the world that we have something to stand on? We have something to stand on. There's a lot of ways to read the book of Revelation wrong, but the two main ones, I think, are one, uh, you know, you start looking at the book, and you start reading the paper, and you start looking at TV, and you say, wow, Mikhail Gorbachev sure has a mighty birthmark on his head. I wonder if that is a mark of the beast. The Soviet Union has these stars and this hammer and this sickle. Perhaps, perhaps the Soviet Union is it. This is it. And you start looking every day, day in and day out. And, and, and what you begin to do is you whip up a fear in people. It's coming. Don't you know? And it's going to be so bad and so horrible and so hard for you. Honestly, we don't have to look further than this week's news to see. I mean, in one state, we've got natural evil. Poor little, poor little boy in a theme park of all places gets attacked by nature. Uh, moral evil. Someone just runs around murdering people. You don't have to look far to see, man, things are falling apart in a sense. But I think the book of Revelation, or pardon me, Romans chapter 8 is also really clear. Uh, there's this oscillation that happens in world history. Uh, Paul uses the metaphor of, of birth pangs, that when, when, a, when a woman is in labor, everything kind of amps up, and everything kind of amps back down. And everything, we call these contractions, by the way. Everything amps up, and everything amps back down. There's rest for a moment, and, and you can breathe. Well, I can't breathe. A person can breathe, and then the next thing you know, everything gets crazy. Eventually, a baby gets born out of the deal, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing, right? Eventually, at the end of these oscillations, Jesus comes and puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. That's what the point of that section of Romans chapter 8 is. And when we when we focus on the birth pains, we miss what God is doing in the world. We miss that God is doing wonderful and amazing things. But we can get so obsessed with the negative parts of the book that we miss that the point of the book is that Jesus is going to wipe every tear from every eye, that Jesus is going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Uh, likewise, on the other end of that, the way we read it wrong is by trying so hard to de-weirdify, and I just invented that word, we try so hard to de-weirdify the book uh, that we say, and this is, this is true of the really, what it would be called, really hardcore preterist, which is the fancy word that you can use in Scrabble now, who try and say absolutely everything in the book of Revelation, except for the return of Jesus, happened before 70 A.D. Really? All of it? I think a lot of that has to do with de-weirdifying it. If you, if you can say that, then all the guys who are saying Mikhail Gorbachev and the Soviet Union kind of have all the wind sucked out of their sails. I think at the same time, we kind of sell the family farm because we read the book of Revelation, like all this happened before 70 AD, or all this, some of them say 100 AD, all of this already happened? I don't think so. Uh, now, I would also say as we approach and, and wade in here, I will let you know when we're talking about heresy. Preterism, that's not a heresy. Thinking Mikhail Gorbachev is the, the beast or has the sign of the beast or the mark. If you're looking in here and you're saying, I think that's it, you might be wrong, or at least maybe 1989 proved you wrong. Um, that's when the wall came down, by the way. Um, the wall is a big wall they built in Berlin, by the way. Berlin is in Germany. It used to be two Germanys. Anyways, 
See, that's, that's how you make it a dated reference. Some people are like, Berlin Wall, what the heck is that? It was a big deal when I was like seven, okay? Um, that I'm dating myself now. Back on outline. Uh, so the thing is, is that both of those people uh, are not necessarily, they're not sinning and they're not doing something heretical. Neither the preterist nor the newspaper guy are doing a wrong thing. I just don't know that it's the helpful thing. I don't know that it's what this book is actually after. Here's the third thing we do. The third way we read it wrong is we don't. The third way we read it wrong is that we get so weirded out by this guy or so weirded out by that guy that we just stay out of this thing. This is scripture. This was a gift from God, and it's okay to be a little confused, okay? Uh, I have been working diligently in the last couple of years, putting tons and tons of effort and energy into unpacking this book and understanding the idea of what's called eschatology, which is the study of last things. Uh, not because I'm a newspaper guy, not because I'm the other guy, but I just realized I stayed out of it. I realized, you guys have it. You want to be weird with it? Be weird with it. I'm going to just read Mark's gospel. And I realized I was missing out on a lot because as you read it, you understand that if you read the Old Testament, so much of what is this eschatology, 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 there we go, is pointing forward to a beautiful, wonderful thing. That's Messiah coming and the gospel coming and the church era and this time when God is leading forward to wiping every tear from every eye. And you realize suddenly that the New Testament, everything in the New Testament, every book in the New Testament is eschatological. Uh, that we as the people of God are this end times people. We've been actually invited into this wonderful thing God is doing that we'll see him bring to fruition here in, in 1920 and 21. Uh, and it's a wonderful and amazing thing. And so I think the three ways we do it wrong is that we either we read it sort of too much into the paper not enough into the paper, or we just stay out of it altogether. Because I think actually both the preterist guys, they've got some good points, and we should listen to them, saying, hey, this seems like this, and this seems like this. And the newspaper guys also have some good points. Jesus does say, you'll know when it's coming. I mean, we'll look at the, the, the revival in, in Romans chapter 11 of the Jews, that there's a time coming when, when, the, when Paul seems to indicate that tons and tons and tons of Jewish people will say, hey, that whole Old Testament thing is actually about this Jesus guy. And they'll become believers in Jesus. It also says in that time, the time of the Gentiles will be sealed up, or, or the time of the Gentiles will come to a completion, depending on your Bible. Less and less non-Jewish people are going to be meeting Jesus, and all of a sudden there will be this mass revival. And if you happen to be alive in that moment, you, say, you might say to yourself, huh, isn't Romans 11 interesting? Isn't, isn't this an interesting thing that seems to be occurring? So here's what I want to do with the short time we have. I want to dig into this text. And I want to see the point of this text. And I hope that we begin to unpack it. Because I said, the whole point of this is this section we just looked at. I'm going to read it one more time, and then we'll start digging into 19. Okay. The dwelling place of God is with man, in verse 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This sermon, I will use more big words that you can use in Scrabble that you don't really need to remember, but I think this is helpful. This is helpful for understanding the book. Protology is eschatology. Protology, protos, first things. Eschatology, last things. The, the eschatological, the end times trajectory, the end game of universal history, redemptive history, is taking us back to where the whole thing started. God made everything and he called it good. He made human beings good. He made his creation good. And we broke it. And the end trajectory of history is Jesus Christ putting it all back the way it's supposed to be. Right? 
and this is the loud drum. He's putting it back. Yay! And if you get lost in some of the stuff and you just get bogged down in chapter 7 or chapter 9 or somewhere in there and you just never get to the Jesus wins. Not love wins, it's Jesus wins. Right? The end game of the gospel is not that we just have a nice life and die and go into the dirt. The end game of the gospel is that you and I have been saved by Jesus to live with him in his grace and mercy in this world put back the way it's supposed to be forever. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. And we'll see here in 19, Jesus Christ earned it. And he's the one that has done it all. He is the alpha. He is the omega. And it's finished. That's the point of the book of Revelation. And if you get bogged in all of this stuff, you'll never read it. Because it's confusing. Some pregnant lady out in the woods giving birth to a bit. What is happening here? I don't know. I would also say there's some really good commentaries, Bible studies. We do Bible studies. We're not in the book of Revelation right now, but Lenny will be bringing Malachi to an end, and you could always ask him to do Revelation. It would be fun. Now I put the pressure on him. So go with me to 19. We're going to walk through this a little bit. So we're 19. We'll start in verse 11. There's so much we could do. There's so many wonderful, beautiful things in here that we, if we just stay out of it, we'll never get there, right? And, and we'll miss this beautiful stuff. Now, so remember, so John, this is John the Beloved. He wrote John's Gospel. He wrote 1 John. He wrote 2 John. He wrote 3 John. Convenient, I know. John, John, John 1, 2, and 3. It's a little confusing. The first time I ever went to church, I was looking in John when I was preaching out of 1 John, and I was lost and I didn't, I thought I needed the coder glasses. So here we are, Revelation. So he's writing this book at the end of the first century AD. John lives an extraordinarily long time. Now, this is, myth is the wrong word, but this is extra biblical. So he's writing this from the island of Patmos, probably in 95 AD. Why is he on the island? Well, all we know, he's been imprisoned on the island. According to church history, they tried lighting him on fire or drowning him or something. They tried killing him, and it didn't work. So they put him on the island. What we do with that story is, well, within the sovereignty of God, just for the record. Uh, but no matter what, he's an old, old man on the island of Patmos, and he has this revelation. He has this apocalypsus in, in Greek. He has this vision of Jesus, and it's revealed to him, and he sends it off to these churches. Uh, now, the people who are receiving these letters, is 95 A.D., persecution is beginning to really light up. It is becoming very difficult all of a sudden in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. You're living, you're suffering. If you imagine yourself, you can put yourself in their, their place. You're, you're in one of these places, all of a sudden you start losing jobs. People start getting, I mean, people start getting executed in the 60s. Pastors start getting killed, right? It's, it's a serious time. And you know that just being a Christian might cost you your life. And you get this letter that says, yes, it may actually cost your life. But don't forget, Jesus wins. He's got it. Hold on. Keep going. He will wipe every tear from every eye. He will put the world back the way it's supposed to be. And it does not matter what the world says. It matters what Jesus says. So here we are, 19, verse 11. I'm going to read kind of some big sections and, and kind of unpack it from there, okay? Uh, now, this is, uh, again, when you're reading the book of Revelation, there are things that are clearly kind of visions and metaphors, and then there are things uh, that we need to understand as, as sort of straightforward, especially 
where other places in the Bible, this in particular, 1 Thessalonians 5, doesn't describe it in vision language, describes it like this in historical language. Jesus is coming ripping through the sky and will deal with the bad guys. That's, that's how it's described. It doesn't say bad guys, by the way, in 1 Thessalonians 5. You can go looking for it in your word study, but it's there. Um, then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Happy Father's Day. I forgot to say it, and I saw the word war and remembered it's Father's Day, and I'm preaching a war sermon on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I'll say it as sternly as I can. Happy Father's Day. War style. Now, we have to remember, our war is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. We fight a different war. We're an army marching on our knees, praying for the lost, sharing the gospel. But there is a very real day when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will return and will judge. And the reason we can turn the other cheek and not do revenge, and that's what that verse is actually about, is not pacifism, but not being revengeful. The reason we are not vengeful people, because vengeance belongs to the Lord. We look around and say, when, Jesus, when will you deal with these people who are doing the Chinese government persecuting the people of God? When will you deal with what's happening in Iran? What will, when? It's coming. It's as though we don't fight that way. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. A diadem is a particular Middle Eastern crown you wear in victory. If you are in a boxing match, or a, uh, we can make it more Seattle, if you're in a kendo tournament, and the guy shows up with his bamboo stick and armor, and he's wearing the medal for the fight you are about to get in, I will tell you he is very confident about the outcome of the, uh, the fight you're about to do, the stick-fighting thing that you're about to stick-fight with. He's wearing the medal for the fight you're about to get into. He's wearing diadems. He's wearing the victory crowns. He's showed up to the fight with the crown on his head with the peace treaty signed. Let's go. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in the blood, and the name by which he is called, John's going to be very clear for us a couple of times, just in case you, for, you don't catch who this is, the Word of God. John 1, 1. This is Jesus. And the armies of heaven... So here's one of our translation. It's fine that your Bible says this. Chris Tomlin fixed it in his song, so we're okay. The God of angel armies, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, proper name of God, of armies. This is the God of armies. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. On his robe, on his robe, it says, 
not a tattoo on his thigh, as many, many, many people are saying for some reason all these days. On the robe on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Capital K, King, lower K, Kings. The ruler of everything has come to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Uh, we, uh, we don't like the W word, wrath, very often. Uh, wrath means the business end of God's justice. It means that God doesn't uh, sweep anything under the rug. And more and more people actually, I think, do like wrath. I, I think I pointed this out a couple weeks ago. When you, when you ding a cake maker $150,000 and try and take away absolutely everything he has, you like wrath. That's wrath. Trying to take everything away from somebody because of what they think about Jesus, that's wrath. We like wrath. We want people to pay in 2016. Uh, Ten years ago, I don't think so. I, I think we, we kind of liked just, no, no, we're cool. We pick flowers. Everything's fine. I like picking flowers. It's fine. I think these days we actually want people to pay when they don't agree. We people want people to pay. That's wrath. This is wrath. On his robe and on his thigh is written the name, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing. So I think we, we have at the top of this that paragraph, as we see it in 1 Thessalonians 5, we have direct, specific, historical happening. Uh, the sword tongue thing, that could be metaphor. It also could be real. God's God, and I'm not going to write it off. It could be prophetic metaphor. Uh, the angel standing on the sun, in the sun, again, uh, I'm actually, and again, this is the, the area, there are Christians who can say, well, this is all metaphor because, look, no one can stand in the sun. And I say, well, yeah, and he's an angel and it's God, and so I'm actually okay either way here. Um, just to be clear, we don't require for membership of our church an eschatological position other than Jesus will return and put everything back the way it's supposed to be. And just so we're clear, we actually don't even require that for eldership. We require that for eldership, that we believe that Jesus is going to return and put things back the way it's supposed to be. That's the eschatological position we require. Uh, I tend to read these things more and more towards a literal meaning, um, and so I'll put that card on the table. But listen, either way, it's saying the same thing. Jesus wins. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly over him, Come, gather for the supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings and the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and the riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the enemy of God, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured with its false prophet, who in the presence has done the signs by which deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. There's this amazing picture in the book of Revelation of this beast having sort of miraculous powers, and people go in on the miraculous powers, and they worship this beast because they're, uh, they're impressed by the fanciful fireworks that it does, whatever those may be. Uh, those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that come from the mouth of him who is sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged in their flesh. Jesus comes and deals with the evil people. Uh, if you'd go with me to Isaiah chapter 9, this, shouldn't, this actually, that section's not really a surprise for us if we know our Old Testaments. And I say that looking for Isaiah 9, wondering, do I know my Old Testament enough to find the page that I'm looking for? And the answer is yes, of course I do, here in chapter 9. Pardon me. Yes, 9. No, not 
please forgive me. It's because I'm in Ecclesiastes. That's what happens when you don't put your post-it note in your spot. You're like, that sounds so depressing. Um, so here we are in chapter 9 of Isaiah, where there will be uh, no gloom for her who is in anguish. The former time uh, he brought into contempt the land of Zelebalum and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the waves, the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Jesus said this is about him, by the way. The people who walk in great darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. Now here's the verse I'm looking for. Verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as the fuel of the fire. There will be no more war. Jesus, in chapter 19, is a bringing an end to all war. All war. The uh, president of France and the prime minister of France this week both said that their fight against extremism and terrorism and things in their country will take a generation. They said it's not a popular thing to say, but anticipate it for the long haul. We are in this. That's scary. It's a scary thing to say, but it's not a new thing. It's not like the 21st century has brought war for the first time ever. Right? Jesus brings it all to an end. The swords go into plowshares. The uh, M16s turn into John Deere tractors. Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Swords into plowshares take all the stuff of war and turn it into stuff for farming because farming's way more fun. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20. <clears throat> Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon. If John was clear about the white horse rider in 19 being Jesus, he's more clear, I would say, here about this being Satan, the very figure that was in the garden that wrecked everything to begin with. Listen. That the ancient serpent, who is the devil... And Satan. Just so we're clear, if you want to say, well, you know, Satan is really a Hebrew word, meaning adversary. This is the liberal explanation for Satan and malevolent spirits. And we all have to fight that adversary and our, blah, 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 blah. Just saying, no, 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 no. There is a snake in a garden who ruined everything. His name is the devil and his name is Satan. In case you missed it, he's the guy. He's the guy. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Thousand years, here's the word kilioi. It's where we get the word kilo. Or, uh, yeah, kilo, uh, meaning a thousand. This is where we get the word millennium, not millennials. Uh, my generation who loves to play video games and more video games. Uh, rather... Uh, Millennium means a thousand, the kilioi, a thousand. There are four major views how to understand this thing. And I will try to unpack them as quickly as possible because this is one of the things people get hung up on and say, well, you guys are talking about all this stuff that I don't understand and so I'm just going to stay out of it. There's, there's actually a reason for all of it. 
uh, there's these four views. One's called postmillennialism. Uh, that means that human beings, really the church, not just human beings, Christians, are going to bring about a golden age. And in that golden age, after that golden age, post-millennial, Jesus will return. That golden age is the millennium, Jesus will return. Puritans love this one. Jonathan Edwards loved this one. Many early missionaries, William Carey, loved this one. And then World War II and World War I happened. Everyone says, hmm, I don't know. It has a modernistic flavor that things are getting better and things will continue to get better and more and more. And, and they have good reason to think these things. In the 20th century, by God's grace and mercy, it's believed that more people became Christians in the 20th century, the 100 years of the 20th century, and why missions are so important. In that 100 years, more people met Jesus than all the other centuries prior put together. Praise the Lord. The brothers and sisters who hold this view, I don't, by the way. The brothers and sisters who hold this view have a, you know, a good thing to stake it on. Things were getting better there. Uh, and yet we see that things are not always getting better. Uh, and as sort of we kind of get into one of those peaks of the, uh, the birth pangs, people tend, this view tends to fall out of favor. This was Jonathan Edwards' view. He read, it said that he read the, his uh, Bible with his newspaper out. And the opposite of the McCall excuse me, the opposite of the Mikhail Gorbachev guy who's saying, oh, it's, it's all going poorly, he would open it up and say, wow, what is God doing in the world? Where are people getting now that, that people haven't heard the gospel? Yep, look at that. The gospel's going to the ends of the earth. So he, he did the same thing people do today. He just did it sort of more positively. Uh, the other view is called amillennialism. Ah, meaning no millennium, uh, meaning that the thousand years is happening now. Uh, this is based on the thinking of a couple of old-timey cats, Origen, uh, Clement, uh, Augustine is really the guy who makes this really popular. And what I would say is that the, that the theory and the view is actually based on really solid biblical ideas like Psalm 110, but the guys who first proposed it based it on bad stuff. Uh, that doesn't mean that the, because their thinking is wrong thinking, uh, but their thinking was that, ugh, an earthly rain... That sounds so carnal and stuffy, stuff, you know, they, uh, tactile, uh, like real stuff. And they were kind of Platonistic in their thinking. They kind of thought spiritual's good, physical's not so good, uh, so on and so forth. And so they kind of had this draw. Augustine had this draw to that, that view, and then the church adopts it. And we kind of roll with that, and many, many reformers adopted it. Uh, the problem is, is that this view is, a, this, I think this text has something a little different. The third view is the one, another one that kind of gets us shutting our Bibles and saying, let's stay out of it. And that's called uh, premillennial, dispensational premillennialism, which is where we get basically left behind movies. Uh, there's going to be a secret rapture. Everyone disappears. It's tribulation. And in the end, Jesus returns. Which, by the way, if you watch those movies, they don't get there. I, I made it halfway through the third movie, and I was waiting for Jesus to come back. And they had more like famous people in it, but I didn't see Jesus come back. So maybe I need to watch the last half of that movie and maybe you can inform me on that. But I did watch them. They're pretty good. Actually, Kirk Cameron, he's, he's a highlight of these. I'm going to stop there and keep going. Now, I actually, uh, I think the problem with this view is that I, I don't think the church misses out on the tribulation. I don't think so. Um, and I also don't see anything quiet about the rapture. Uh, there's some verses that could support it, but in uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus comes with a cry of command. Boom, Jesus is here. I think that's, that's what's going to happen. So I hold a minority view today. 2016, it's a minority view. 
uh, in the first century, it was the view of pretty much everybody. So I at least have some guys with fancy Greek and Latin names who also held this view, which make me not crazy. Specifically, Polycarp and Irenaeus. Aren't those fun names to say? Irenaeus is discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp is discipled by John the Beloved, who wrote the book of Revelation. So, you know, that's pretty good. If you get discipled by somebody on eschatology in the end times, might as well be the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. This is a view that says Jesus is going to return, and he is going to set up a rule and reign uh, after the end of the tribulation. He, he's coming back. He's going to set up a kingdom here. And even we saw this is why you should go to Bible study at 6 a.m. at Yoke of Coffee. We saw this in, uh, not that we were, not that Lenny, specifically, who was leading it, so I'm not going to put words in your mouth, not that he was advocating this view, but we see a sequence there in uh, Malachi in chapter 3. Uh, there's a revival in Israel. The nations stream into Jerusalem. Jesus comes and judges. Uh, we see this in, I think, Romans chapter 11. The time of the Gentiles is sealed up. There's a great revival. And I think that great revival ultimately is precursor to the millennium. And in the millennium we have, it doesn't say this in Romans, it says everywhere else, Isaiah and Ezekiel. And then once there's that revival in stream, the nations. And I think the big reasons for this, you can say, well, wouldn't, wasn't that revival when Jesus came and all these Jewish people started believing that he's Jesus? That's a good idea. I thought about it just last night, and then I realized, but Paul says it didn't happen then. And so it's coming. That, that revival's coming. Now, the Amil guys have to say that that's happening now, and uh, the big revival with the Jews is just happening as people are gathered into the church, but I just don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. Now, I say all that to say, let's look at this text and see what it says so that I can make some sense of it, because I know that's a, that's a hang-up for some people. So we'll kind of go through it quickly. Uh, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key, boom, to the bottomless pit. It is an abyss. It's the same language that's used in Genesis chapter 1 from the Septuagint. It's a bottomless pit and a great chain. Okay? Satan's going to get thrown in the pit, and he's got a chain and a key. Okay. Chain, key. And he sees the dragon. Oh, I forgot about the dragon. He's the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And bound him for a thousand years. That's our Kilioi. Uh, and threw him into the pit. And shut it and sealed it over him. So he's chained up. He's bound up. He's thrown in a pit. And the pit is what? It is sealed. And this word in Greek means like hermetically sealed. Like sealed up tight. Like when you're in the kitchen and you're trying to get into the pickles and you can't open the pickle jar. And then my wife has to say, hey, you come open the pickle jar. And I try and I can't. I run under water and hit it with a knife. I can't get into the pickle jar. Sealed, right? That pickle jar is sealed. Satan is sealed like he's in a pickle jar. Okay, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Are people being deceived still by Satan? The answer is yes. We're going to say, well, you have to look at the purpose. Satan's being sealed so that the nations can meet Jesus and that the missionaries can go to the end of the earth. Now, the problem with that is the first part of the verse seems to indicate that Satan is completely shut up and sealed. So for those of us who live in Seattle and see weird spiritual stuff all the time, I have to say that I am hard-pressed to say that Satan is sealed up like a pickle jar and no longer doing anything here on the planet. It's a tough exegetical thing. But I say this as good news, not as freaky, weird, scary news. Can you imagine there's a time coming when we don't talk about spiritual warfare anymore except to say, Jesus is awesome, he crushed Satan, yeah. That's gone, right? Sin's going to get thrown in the lake. People who reject Jesus are going to get thrown in the lake. Satan's going to get thrown in the lake, but I keep going. 
that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years uh, were ended. And after that, he must be released a little while. Now, here's encouraging resistance literature for the church in the midst of a world that has had to deal with evil. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, for the word of God, for those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They'd not gone with the world systems. They'd not rebelled against God. Uh, This word beheaded here is what's called a hapax legamenon, which is a fun word to say, but just means it appears one time. It means capital punishment. It means governments are killing people because they will not love Jesus. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years was ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such. The second death has no power but they will be priests of God in Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, skip with me. So Satan gets released and you say, well, why why does Satan get released? Can't we just be done with him? These are the things I was thinking of when I was working on this sermon, specifically last night. This was troubling me. Like, why don't we just finish him off? Why don't we just take care of him? Why, Why the thousand years? Why does he get let back out? And it occurred to me how much God wants things to be clear that it's his work that does it and that he is the God of of angel armies. He is the the Lord of hosts. And and I think this is uh, not because Satan, like somebody baked Satan a cake with a file in it, and he like snuck out. He's he's let out to be dealt with. So skip with me down to verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, that's Jesus, by the way, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and tall, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Everyone will be judged. Someone may have done wrong to you or someone you know or someone you love at some point in time in your life, and it feels like they have evaded justice. They will not. Either Jesus has paid the price for their sins or they will have to, just like us. And it is a beautiful, glorious thing when our enemies repent and become Christians and love Jesus and are forgiven. But we need to know that he doesn't, uh, it doesn't sweep anything under the rug. Now hear the gospel in this. How many books are open? Three? Three-ish? And another book was open, right? This is important, this other book. So there's the... The books, whether it's a book or books, they get opened that contain the deeds, good and bad. So we take all your stuff and we put it on a scale. And you stand before God and all your stuff goes on a scale. Now, our problem is that we've sinned against God. God is infinitely holy, infinitely wonderful, infinitely perfect. And by the way, this is the problem with any uh, false religion that tries to, to, to sell out Jesus as fully God, by the way. Um, so... On the scale it goes, and it turns out all my good works don't weigh out my infinitely bad works. Right? That's bad news. But the third book's open, the book of life. If you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, your name's in that book. So it's not about the scales. It's about the book. This is the gospel. You haven't earned it. God's given it to you. It's not on the scales. It's in the book. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Go with me to 21, because we're running out of time. Then I saw, listen, this is, this is the, the, the crowning 
chapters of the book. And I have to confess, part of my reason and interest here is that 21 and 22 are some of the most well-worn chapters of my Bible, personally. When I look at the evil in the world and I come back to the truth of what God is doing, I find comfort. We're supposed to. Now, my interest in this book the last couple of years has been that I felt like for me and in my heart and in my life, there was a disconnect between 21, 22, and the rest of the book. But when I realized the whole book is about 21 and 22, it changed everything for me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Because if you are living in uh, this time and place, and there may or may not be a sea, we live in Washington and we love the sea. If you are living in the first century, the sea is scary. You pilot little boats that stay by the land, and you're not Magellan, and you don't go out to the sea because the sea eats people. Your boat smashes, and you die. You're on a boat, and Jesus is sleeping, and you're just on what's called a sea, which you can see either end to, and you say, oh, no, we're all going to die. Jesus, wake up. And Jesus wakes up and rebukes the sea and treats them like they're fools because he's Jesus, and he's got it, and he's going to take care of it. But these are like veteran fishermen. The sea is scary. So when it says the sea is no more, the chaos is dealt with, okay? Um, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down. So the world is totally remade in heaven and earth, joined together. And down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Just like it was in, it doesn't say this, this is the parenthetical idea. Just like it was supposed to be. Just like he made it. He made human beings. He called them very good. And he built them to be with him and dwell with him forever. And we're the ones who broke it. And he's the one who fixes it. This is a redo of Genesis 3. It's a, it's a, it's a blotting out of Genesis 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling places of God was with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I cannot imagine that. That is a picture too beautiful, and we simply run out of words. No pain. I, I have moments in my life that are very joyful, and I hope you do too. No pain, no sickness, no death, no tears. Isaiah described it as like a distant memory. It's not like you get, you know, your brain is wiped out and you forget these things, but the goodness and the joyfulness of being present with Jesus forever because of his death, burial, and resurrection makes those former things seem so far away. And he is on, seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these things down. They are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. This is the warning to hang on. But for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexual moral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and liars, their portion will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur that is the second death. Go with me to six. And he said to me, 
These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Jesus is saying, I am going to do this. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this book. Listen, hang on. Right? The message isn't be afraid of the Soviet Union. The message is hang on. The message isn't freak out and build a bunker and get a, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of wheat berries in a bucket and hang out with some cans of beans and wait for Jesus to return. It is hang on, Jesus has it. Your bunker doesn't help you. I mean, we're city people, so we don't have bunkers, but maybe you've got your bug out car and you've got a bunker somewhere else, right? Your bunker doesn't help you when it all goes down. Jesus does. Jesus does. So we hang on to Jesus. So I think at the core of this book are, are, are three things. One, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Our, our circumstances may seem great. The consequences may seem worse. But trust him. He loves you. He's got it. I don't care who wins the election. He's got it. I, I don't care what the price of gold is right now. He's got it. He's got it. Trust him. Uh, secondly, hang on. <laughs> Part of that trusting is hanging on, right? There are all these warnings in the book of Revelation. Don't go with the world. Don't go with the devil. Hang on to Jesus. Hang on to Jesus. And finally, rest in Jesus. This is a picture of us living with Jesus forever without sin, without death without destruction, without lock, a lock on your car. Alarm salesmen are out of business because you don't need one because no one's going to steal from you there. Rest. And it's he who did it, not us. It's he who did it. It's he who saved you. It's he who's going to bring you to completion, Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel isn't just that you're forgiven for sin, but you get life now and forever. And this is a picture of that life forever. And it's a gift. Eternal is quality and quantity. We get to foretaste this kingdom now, but we get to live in it in its fullness with him forever. Let's pray. Jesus, I do thank you for today. As long as it's called today, I thank you for today. I pray for our city, Lord God, that they would come to know you, love you, and serve you all the days of their life. Pray for us that we would trust you in whatever is happening. I pray for us, Lord Jesus, that we would hang on, that, that you would be our footing in life, nothing else. And ultimately, we would rest in the completed work of your cross to cleanse us from all our sin and your completed work, the things that you have done to make the, the positive end of all things as we know them not of all things, period, but as we know them. So you've already done everything that needs to happen and that we can hang on and hold on and trust you. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Um, in a moment, we'll take communion together. Um, this is a victory table. We take this, this, this meal, this communion, as a celebration of what Jesus has done on our behalf. He died on the cross to wash us by his blood from our sins. And so this is for Christian people. And when you're ready, we do the work in our seat of 1 Corinthians where we turn from our sin and we turn from Jesus. But when we come to this cup, we come as people knowing we're bought by his blood. 
redeemed by him, saved by him, and ultimately have a seat at the table in heaven forever with him. So when you're ready, uh, we'll stand up and sing, and we'll, we'll take up this cup together.